Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. On the podcast, Ty Ravine. I went to see his dad many times with my dad. I can't wait for you to hear the conversation with Ty Ravine. Also, the top Mountie in Manitoba. She's only been at the job for about a week and a half. Jane McClatchy will be on the podcast. And Carolyn Klassen from Conexus Counseling. All that on the way. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now, the podcast. Legend of Ravine continues in the form of his son. It brought back all the memories of growing up. I've been to Ravine a number of times when I was a kid, and it was fantastic. Best show I've ever seen. Excellent. Really enjoyed it. So funny, so good. Amazing. I didn't think he could do his father, but he's done his father proud. I'm going to come back and go on stage next time. The man they call Ravine. Ah, memories of my childhood. My dad would take me to see Ravine. And now Ty Ravine is in studio. I'm so excited to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. (laughs) Pleasure to meet you, Hal. Um, Does that ever, uh, you were just telling me off air that early 70s, as early as the early 70s, you were part of your dad's show. Yeah, professionally from 1974, uh, pretty well from that point on as a permanent member of his stage crew. Well, I may very well have seen one of those shows. You Um, might have been telling me to sit over (laughs) here, kid, and whatever. Yeah, well, the likelihood, if you've seen Ravine since the early 70s, that I was on stage working with him was Mm -hmm. quite almost certain. I had a thought about you today. I I earlier played an old commercial of your dad's, and then I wanted to play your commercial now, and I thought, well, you know, uh, lots of times... Famous kids have famous parents, and, you know, sometimes that's tough. You want to distance yourself, and and you've done this. How did you make the decision to get into the family business? Was that tough? Uh, Well, my father planted the seed when I was five years old. He told me, I think we were in Katepwa Beach once, and then he said that one day you'll be taking over the show, and it stuck with me. Right. You know, and I kind of knew it in the back of my mind. As I started growing up, uh, people started noticing I looked more like him than my you other do. brothers. You look, as you walk down the hall here, yeah. I, I, I thought of your dad instantly. <laughs> yeah, you look just like your dad. <laughs> he was great. But I think even more than his ability to hypnotize and that, he was just a showman, wasn't he? He understood yeah, he the Yeah, he was shows. the last of the vaudevillian uh, showmen. You Absolutely. Know, when vaudeville died in America, it kind of went down to Australia and survived for an extra decade. And he was on that tail end of the vaudevillian shows that would follow the tent grounds and stuff like that, doing magic. And then he got into his hypnotic uh, shows. In uh, yeah. 1955, he went... Uh, full bore, uh, full time doing the hypnotic uh, shows. Yeah, you're at Club Region Casino tomorrow night. Tell us about your show. Now, people, there will be people that'll 
see you that went to your dad's shows? Do you save a lot of the stuff that worked for him? And, and oh, yeah. Before my and... father passed away, we worked together quite extensively. I had to go down and audition to him quite extensively. Really? Yeah. We, we changed me all his life, you know, just by watching him and being there. Yeah. I was kind of preparing myself every show that I was at. But mm -hmm. uh, we went through a library of ideas and picked out some of the best routines that he's done over the many five and a half decades that he was professionally traveling. And yeah. then I've added my own routines into it. And, uh, and it's worked out really good. I mean, we knew, we agreed that this show has to live up to the, the greatest expectations of all his biggest fans. Yeah. And uh, we believe we've achieved that. We, get packed houses from coast to coast and receive standing ovations on a nightly basis. And uh, the accolades that I receive after the show are just tremendous. Now, is there somebody to take over the family business or is well, will it end with Ty? This, this is your this son. Is, yeah, this is Taj, my youngest son and uh, my youngest son. And uh, he's likely to take on that, that, uh, that seat. And so... But I don't force it on them. They yeah, have to make that right. decision for themselves. Yeah. I was a little bit slow on taking it on because I. he told me at a very young age that I was very creative. So I became very creative. I embraced that suggestion. And I wanted to work with rock and roll people. And I had a tremendous amount of experience with traveling shows and traveling with the biggest magic shows in the world. Yeah. So at a time that uh, uh, people like... Uh, Michael Jackson and Earth, Wind and & Fire and Alice Cooper were hiring magicians to design magic for their shows. Yeah. I became involved in uh, wanting to do that. And I threw my hat into the ring and I became uh, the concept creator of ZZ Top's biggest uh, grossing tour, or the biggest ticket selling tour of their career, which wow. was the Afterburner tour. I designed the stage and the concept platform for their uh, a lot of their videos and uh, designed their stage and the special effects for their show and uh, was proclaimed in the top three stage designers of that year. Uh, and so it kind of boosted my special effects industry ambitions. And I invented the streamer cannon that you see almost every day on television at sporting events and rock and roll shows. Look at you. I invented the first patented confetti cannon and uh, I've done all the... Uh, Things that uh, all the flying ghosts that were in Siegfried and Roy's show and yeah. David Copperfield's TV specials. And I just finished working with um, Chris Angel's new show and putting a bunch of effects into his show. And I'm working with all kinds of different projects. But my passion is now working this show. It's the greatest honor that I've ever had. Well, what a great, uh, you know, there's so much history there, right? I mean, uh, listen, it's about putting, you know, butts in the seat, right? It has to be easier when you've got all those people who went to see your dad and they've got kids and, you know, it, it, it just, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was the biggest grossing show on the top theater circuit. It was the, when we came to town, it was the biggest family event yep. going on other than the circus. And, uh, you know, year after year, we'd see more people coming back. And the most common story I've ever heard was that the uh, mother and the father come with their children and said, we were, our first date was watching your dad's show, yeah. watching the show. And then we decided uh, through laughing together that we had a lot in common. We 
We kept our relationship going. We got married. We had children. And then they bring their children's children and the grandchildren. And by the end of his career, he had four generations coming back to see them. And they all had that one story. The first show we ever came to see Ravina is the first date we ever had. And they Mm. seem to have this magical bond. When people laugh together, they seem to stay together. Mm. And uh, it was a big family event. And nowadays, the the circuses are kind of vanishing. You know, most of the kids' entertainment is mesmerized on that telephone, which they should really, you know, uh, the parents aren't culturing their children like they used to and taking them off to the show. So I encourage them to make their children put down their their telephone and bring them to a show that will open their mind to one of the greatest sciences ever discovered by Anton Mesmer, for which my dad dedicated his life to a greater understanding of the human mind because he was literally mesmerized, excuse the pun, yeah. from uh, realizing what he was able to do. Uh, with his uh, with his understandings of this science of applied suggestion. I'll tell you why I wanted to go and see your dad. My parents had been to one of the shows. We were My sister and I were very young. My parents both smoked. My dad's gone now. My mom's still around. They both smoked, and your dad would sell the albums, yeah. how to lose weight, how to quit smoking, right? How to and relax, how to, how to study, relax, concentrate. Whatever. Yeah, My sure. mom and dad went to one of his shows. They grabbed the album. We're going to quit smoking. Ravine's going to help us quit smoking. And uh, I think the deal was they put the album on, right, and they would lay on the couch, lay on the couch or lay back and be relaxed. Well, my sister and I, we weren't very old. My sister's a couple years younger than me. I was, a kid, I don't know, maybe six or seven. I didn't get it, right? Mm-hmm. They put the album on. They lay down on the couches, and they put their head back. And after about three or four minutes of this, I start getting freaked out. Like, what's going on with mom and dad? We're trying to talk to them. They're trying to pay attention to the album. What's going on? Freaked me out. But I thought, this is really cool, and that's why I wanted to eventually go and see your dad show. But I'm sure you hear stories like that uh, from people all the time about, you know, the things <laughs> yeah, they remember about your dad show. Everybody's got a ravine exactly. story. I mean, it's, it's a household name from coast to coast. But yeah. my father believed that superconscious conditioning was the greatest tool to uh, take control of our mind and guide us to achieving anything in life that we wanted to. Because the mind is made up of two different factions. It's the conscious mind, which in its own nature is very negative. And there's the super conscious mind, which is the part of the mind that allows us to achieve virtually everything that we want to achieve in life. The problem is the conscious mind uh, is very negative in its nature and we evaluate things through conscious reasoning, which 97% of that is based on negative thinking, where the conscious mind is is the powerhouse of the human mind and is capable of all those things. So once you relax the conscious mind, once the conscious mind is relaxed, the uh, the relationship between the two minds works freely, and you can bring forth latent talents, powers, and creative abilities from within yourself that most people never knew existed. And that's what we're able to do on stage. We take people, we put them in a super conscious state, we give them positive relaxations to relax their conscious mind, and it allows the true powerhouse of their subconscious to be awakened and refreshed, and then we make suggestions of what we want them to do and they walk into the spotlight and they perform at a level that most people wouldn't expect to even see from professionals. Yeah, it's crazy. We have people coming back 
to our show and and back after the show and you know year after year and they said we can't believe what our my husband or what my wife or my son or my daughter did yeah. up there it's just we've never yeah. seen that side of them yeah but it's what happens when you can relax your conscious mind so your your subconscious mind works because all as we all know when we go into an examination room uh, and we fail. It's nothing be nothing to do with the fact that we didn't train ourselves to attend all the classes and do all the homework. But we get into that classroom or the examination room, and we start sweating. We start thinking negatively. Well, what if I fail? What right. are the ramifications of this? And that nervous tension builds up. And then the question comes along and we see or write this question or read this question and we know we know the answer, but we can't bring it out of our memory. And that's because our conscious mind is so full of nervous tension that it doesn't allow free exchange of our uh, subconscious mind to bring it forth. And when you relax the conscious mind, it's amazing what you can do. So we have a show that demonstrates the power of this, but in a way that makes you laugh your head off all night at the same time as being absolutely amazed. And that's what made it the world's greatest and funniest stage show and that's why people came to see it like no other show in the history of Canadian theater. Yeah. We're almost out of time. I got to ask, ask you one other thing. Your, your dad seemed to have a love and a connection with Canada and I mean even your stage uh, manager, I want to get his title right, stage Richard, manager yeah. is from Lethbridge, right? As I'm saying <laughs> where I'm from and when I saw your dad and stuff. Sure. What was it about your dad in in Canada? Well, we, when he left Australia, we had a free pass to come to Canada because we were British subjects. Uh, but uh, it was just the, I mean, Canada. But he performed here so much oh, yeah, compared Coast, to anywhere was, else. Yeah, he did. And we had a love for Canada like, you know, no other country. Yeah. If, if you travel the world, you'll see there's a difference between Canadians, the spirit of Canadians compared to Americans, you know. It's it's completely different. But Canadians are a unique group of people and we love them and we yeah. become part of them. And I lived in Las Vegas for 22 years. And as I started having children, I decided to move back here because oh, cool. I, I thought it was the best place to bring up my family. Yeah. Ty Ravine, really nice to meet you. Have a great show tomorrow <laughs> night, Club Reach and Casino. Yes, if you don't have night. your tickets, get them. It's the biggest event in Manitoba tomorrow night. It's going to be a lot Region. of fun. Absolutely. The right. man they call Ty Ravine. All right, I got to work on that. <laughs> thanks, uh, get your tickets. Ty, thanks a lot. Best of luck. Our next guest is the new commanding officer of the Manitoba RCMP, Jane McClatchy, joins us on the phone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for doing this, and welcome to Winnipeg in Manitoba. It's my pleasure, and thank you very much. How long have you been at the job now? A week and a half. Oh, boy. So it's real new. It is, absolutely. (laughs) Any big surprises from when you took the job to now a week and a half in? Anything you've learned already? I wouldn't say there's any surprises. I mean, the previous commanding officer has built a terrific team here at uh, D Division, and I'm just super pleased to to work with them, and I see all the activities that are taking place around the province, and I'm just very proud to be here. I think this is going to be a terrific gig. What's on your list of things you'd like to get done while you're here? Well, I'd like to move forward with a bunch of the stuff uh, that, that aligns with not only the Vision 150 for the RCMP, which in terms of modernizing uh, how we deliver policing services and that kind of thing, but it also aligns with the, the modernization strategy for Manitoba Justice. So I'd like to do some work in terms of community mobilization and getting upstream and 
you know, helping communities find ways to address uh, root causes of crime before people go off track and that kind of thing. So if I could really expand that community mobilization piece across the province, I'd be really happy. If I could find ways to deal with recidivism and um, high incarceration rates and, and you look at restorative justice and looking for pre-charge diversion for, for say, youth, um, all kinds of things I would like to, to find ways to expand that because it's already happening in this province. We've already got some good starts. I'd like to work on, on in, uh, enhancing that. Talk a little bit more about restorative justice because that certainly has has been in the news of late. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at different ways of dealing with crime across you know communities, not just in Manitoba but across the country. One of the issues we see is you can't arrest your way out of these things. You can't just arrest people, throw them in jail. They get out of jail. Criminal, you know, the crimes happen again, and there becomes this revolving door, this this cycle that takes place. Instead, you need to find a way, in my opinion, to identify which crimes you can address through restorative justice, so diversion into other programs. So you can take an offender, often a youth, and say, okay, what have you done and how can you fix it? And how can you tell the community you're sorry? And how can they support you in making sure you have what you need to thrive in this? And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a win-win, so to speak, is if you can take a, a, a youth and and help them to see what they did was wrong and why it hurt people, and then help them to find ways to make amends. And then, again, engage the community in giving that youth the support to move forward and not uh, commit crimes again. It's, it's, uh, it's ideal. So I think restorative justice across the board is hugely important. We're working on different ways across the districts in this province to to give our members the tools and, and the, the understanding to find ways to do a pre-charge diversion when it's appropriate to do so and help people find different ways to, to move forward as opposed to going through the court system and going to jail or group homes or whatever the case may be. I was reading your bio. Man, you've done it all. Uh, done a bunch of things. Yes. Run. You have an impressive bio. Thank uh, you. You were embedded with Team Canada at the Olympics. I was. I did a few games, actually. Yeah. And uh, you were also involved with the musical Ride. Absolutely. Terrific posting. Isn't that cool? Tell me about your time with the musical Ride, because there we were talking to Ty Ravine today. His dad was Ravine, uh-huh. and he's in town, and I was telling him how, as a kid, uh, seeing his dad's show was was sort of a highlight, something I remember now. And I certainly remember going to see uh, the musical ride in Fort McLeod growing up wow. in southern Alberta. So yeah. tell me about that. That would have been a cool a job. Oh, it was a terrific posting. It's based, the uh, musical ride right now is based in Ottawa. Um, but you go in, you do, there, there's there's several phases to get a job with the musical ride. One is a tryout, and then there's a, if, you're, if you're selected, you, you train for almost a full year before you're able to do a show. And you work with the horses, you're doing everything, muck out, grooming, saddling, riding, training, you know, everything you do as a member of the musical ride. And I've been involved in horses for a long time, so I was thrilled to go. And just what a wonderful post. Everything you do when you're on the ride is positive. I mean, people are happy to see you. You travel around the country, well, around the world, really. I've done shows in Canada, the United States, and was uh, fortunate to go to Europe as well. And everybody's happy to see you. The horses are amazing. They're such tremendous animals, and we work very hard to make that show impressive. And it really is impressive. First time you see it, it's amazing how those horses can work those intricate uh, maneuvers. And once you know how to ride them, it's, it's, it's all teamwork. It's all making sure that you do the right thing and the next person along does their thing and it all works out. And 
Um, the musical ride was fabulous. It's just a, a heck of a team to be involved with. I'm very proud of that part of my career. Yeah, very cool. Uh, one of the reasons I was looking forward to chatting with you is because I think, you know, in law enforcement, whether it's the Mounties or, or city police here in Winnipeg, I think there needs to be a better understanding on both sides, right? And uh, like, for example, I was curious to read that uh, you're married. You're a grandmother. You have a grandson. I have a four-year-old grandson, yes. What's his name? His name is Caden. Caden. And you love to spoil him, I'll bet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And you're a dog lover. You've got three, and they're all rescue dogs. Tell me about your dogs. I've got one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had two, and unfortunately, Peta's uh, uh, no longer around. But Hershey, I love her dearly. Uh, tell me about your dogs. I have two boxers and this husky cross thing. And the, the we got into boxers, my husband and I, years ago by accident. We ended up getting one through rescue uh-huh. and uh, just loved the breed. Uh, and we ended up getting another one through rescue. And since then, we've had, we're up to four boxers now. Um, oh, wow. Two we own right now, uh, two females. They're fabulous. And then I have this husky cross because when I was in Saskatchewan, um, fairly recently, we were we were fostering dogs for a dog rescue in Saskatchewan, and so we always had two of our own in one spot for a foster dog. And just before I transferred out of the province, this dog came into our care. He'd been found stray up in northern Saskatchewan, skinny and scrawny and scared, and just a lovely thing. Super chill, loves everybody. And as soon as he came into our home, my husband said, "Yeah, we're keeping this one. We're not finding him an adoptive home. We're adopting him." So we did, and so now I have three. Wow. So how many dogs in total do you have? Right now, just three. Three. Okay, so just three. Over the years, we've had four boxers, but two boxers right now, one husky. Yeah. And uh, when you came to Manitoba to be the commanding officer here, uh, uh, I'm curious to know, is that an appointment that you get, you are sent here, or or, or, or do you apply, or is it something you have to want to do, or, or how does that work with the Mounties? I was invited to uh, take part in the interview and compete for the job. Yeah. So uh, it certainly is something I wanted. I, I certainly could have turned it down when I was when I received the invitation to mm. to, uh, to interview for the job, but I was thrilled to get the 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 invitation and then to come out and do the interview. Um, went very well, obviously. But uh, yeah, yeah, you no, got you got the job, I, so I it must job, it must have went well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this for me is is like a dream job. If you'd told me 30 years ago one day I was going to be an assistant commissioner and a commanding officer, I I wouldn't have believed you. I've worked my career, I've always done my best, and I work very hard, but uh, this to me is almost a dream job. I love the prairies. I'm, I've got a, I've never actually worked in Manitoba before, but as I said, I worked in Saskatchewan, and there's something special about the culture of the prairies. The people are great, uh, super friendly, welcoming, funny, and, uh, you know, they care about each other, and it reminds me a lot of Nova Scotia, where I grew up, and I just love the prairies. And you know something, those wheat fields, when they get, they, when, they, when they're all grown up and blowing in the wind, they remind me a lot of the ocean, too. So mm-hmm. I, I just love it here. Yeah, interesting. And, uh, you know, you talked about uh, some of the things you'd like to do. Um, what about technology? Uh, a, a listener texts it in, ask about the use of drones. What about things we can do better in the province of Manitoba through the RCMP using technology, better oh, yeah. ways to enforce the law. Yeah, and that's, um, I, like I said, I've only been in the chair for a week and a half now, but right. I think that's definitely worth exploring. We've already done a lot of work across the country to find new and innovative ways to deliver world-class policing services. Mm-hmm. 
and the use of UAVs or drones or different types of technology for surveillance or security or what have you. I think it's all, we, we've always got an ear to the ground and listening to hear what's coming up next and what's available. And then we'll explore it. Is is it feasible in, in, in the context of how we have to deliver policing in a place like Manitoba to use that technology? Would it be feasible? Would it improve how we can do the work and, and our efficiency in doing it? So yeah, absolutely. It's all stuff I want to explore. Carolyn Klassen from Conexus Counseling, conexuscounseling.ca. Hello, Carolyn. Hey, Hal. You look nice, bright red today. Oh, it just feels like when the weather breaks a little bit, it just feels like, oh, the whole world has woken up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody was just texting me, speaking of, it feels warmer. I mean, it's still, you know, but it feels warmer. <laughs> For Winnipeg, it's balmy. Exactly. Somebody was saying uh, that the water is melted, the ice and snow are melting, and the water is not draining right on Grant in front of the uh, mall, in front of Grant Park Mall. So I'll just quickly mention that because it, it, okay. it kind of ties in. We've got a couple other things to talk about today, but I really want to talk to you about this Jesse Smol- Smollett case. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the guy that is on the TV show Empire. Uh, he's a gay man. He's a black man. He went to police saying that he was attacked by two people. They made reference to uh, the MAGA hat, which is the Donald Trump Make America Great Again hat. They called him the N-word. They attacked him. He had some injuries, not serious, significant injuries, but still horrible. And everybody reacted, oh, my God, you know, how could this happen? Lots of compassion and support. And And that should be there. Absolutely. We now find out that he may have pulled the whole thing off as a hoax. He's now been charged, this just in minutes ago, $100,000 bail. Uh, he uh, has to turn in his passport. And now he could go to jail for several years mm-hmm. because this may not have really happened. And it's interesting because there's a few ways to look at this. As people in the news business, I know Jeff Courier really feels strongly that we can't cover these stories early on. We need to wait for more facts to come in. But you have an interesting perspective as a therapist. Well, one of the things I noticed as people are are um, talking about now after the arrest is there people sort of on the MAGA side maybe are saying all the people that were horrified and outraged, they need to apologize. They need to retract their statements. And, and there's really sort of this neener, neener kind of attitude. Um, and I guess I... I feel like we we do the best we can with what we've got, and when we have more, we do better, right? And so now as more information is coming out, for someone to have fake his own attack, to exploit the very real racism and very real homophobia that does exist, um, that the fact that if he, this right now, this is an alleged arrest, uh, alleged yeah, he's, charge. Yeah, he's accused of this. There's no proof. He that hasn't it, right. been, it, you know, he hasn't been found guilty yet. Right. But if that turns out to be the case, that doesn't, uh, eliminate the fact that there still is racism and homophobia in our culture, right? And we do right to be outraged by incidents where we hear that happen. And I think sometimes people in the media and the rest of us, we are we, there's a lot of pressure on us to take a side and to hold that position very firmly and very strongly, and then to be almost mocked or made fun of if we find out later on the information is very different. Yeah. And I think we need to recognize that we do the best we can with what we've got. And then when we have more information and can do better, we do better. And then we circle back and apologize for what we need to. But we also recognize that some of the same underlying issues exist, whether this happened or not. Yeah, We're told uh, now more than ever that we should always believe 
I don't like using the word victim, but we should always believe people that come forward and say, I was sexually assaulted or I was attacked. And I think when this happened, everybody did, for the most part, go, how horrible. And it is horrible. Mm -hmm. Whether it happened or not, you're right, it happens. We we know that. It may not happen in this. It didn't happen in this case, maybe, but it does happen. Um, Does it hurt causes like Me Too at all when something like this turns out to not be true? Well, how can it not, right? And I think people are always feeling like when people come forward, no one's going to believe me. And when you have someone that is prominent and comes forward and, you know, was very persistent in his case and then found we find out that perhaps it didn't happen, other people are, will I be believed? And I think we recognize that historically the person who is with the lesser power or the more marginalized person has not been believed and the pendulum is swinging the other way. Um, and that puts people in positions of power. It makes people nervous, um, and understandably so. I think we have to continue talking about this and recognize how much courage it takes to come forward and that most people do not exploit or come forward in a way. It just it doesn't happen very often. Does it happen? Yes. Does it happen very often? No. Yeah, and certainly when there are... Uh, when somebody is accused of multiple crimes, right? Right. I, I, I'm much quicker to go, there's, my dad used to say where there's smoke, there's fire. And where there's a lot of smoke, chances are there's a lot of fire. Sure. So sometimes I'm reluctant to jump to the conclusion that some other people jump to based on one accusation. But when you have several, I mean, it's like Bill Cosby, for example. I mean, how can you say right. <laughs> there's nothing there? But I think what we recognize in this age of the World Wide Web is that we feel like everybody has to have an opinion about everything and we have the right to know what's going on. And somehow, because it's in the news, we all know. And I think we need to sort of give ourselves permission to say, I'm glad that there's people close to the situation that are doing the investigating, that are going to find these things out, that are going to get all the details. And until then, all I know is what's being said, and I can't know more than that, and it's not my responsibility to know more than that, and it's not my responsibility to have conclusions that are firmer than base, than, than what I can possibly know. And sometimes, you know, on you see opinion polls, you know, what do you think about this? And we're asked to lend our opinion to all sorts of things that we don't really have the right to. And we, we sort of start to buy into the myth that we can know everything about everything, and then we have the right to have an opinion about everything. And Sometimes you just don't know. I think we're becoming even more opinionated because of social media, for example, where it's all about what do you think, right? What do you think of this picture? What do you think of this whatever? And we're so quick to give our opinion now on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram that we do it more now in real life. We had a healthy discussion about this in the news meeting this morning, and I recorded a few minutes with Jeff Courier before he left, and I want to play that back later on because... Jeff believes, I hope I can put this in in words that he would agree with, but Jeff believes that in a story like this, uh, we're too quick to report on it. I believe we can report what we know, but we need to make it very clear to people listening that more may come of this, or this person is accused of this, or Jesse Smollett claims he was attacked. We have to be careful with the wording, but I don't think there's anything wrong in our news business of saying, Here's what we know. So far, more may come. Jeff is more on the side that, no, if we don't have a lot of detail, maybe we don't even touch that story until we know more. 
And I think we as listeners, I as a consumer yeah. of media, have to recognize that regardless of whether you preface it with this is what we know so far, is to know that that's always when the news is reported. Up to this point, this is the best news that we've got, right. knowing that the situation is organic and fluid and evolving and that the story is going to change and we have to allow for the fact that it will. And that means that when we have thoughts and opinions about these things, we we keep them sort of uh, somewhat flexible to be able to develop our positions as more information comes forth. Yeah, we were talking a lot about this today in the newsroom, and a lot of people are talking about this too, and I wanted to get you to weigh in on this, and I'm glad you were willing to do that because uh, it is a big story, um, but it, and it speaks to, you know, really important issues, but it's interesting that, man, the tables have, have turned on this one. It spun around, and it really has everybody going, what is this all about? You know, apparently, according to Chicago police, it's because he was unhappy uh, with his salary. One of the reasons he was unhappy with his salary. And this guy's been an advocate for blacks and for the gay community. Think of the damage that he has done. He says this community, these communities are so important to him. Look at the damage he's done by telling this lie if... (laughs) And I, I want to be real careful because... Because the situation is still fluid. We don't know. It could spin again. I, he's accused of this now. Right. Yeah. Anyhow. But I think um, often, I, I feel like in my therapy office, often yeah. people come and say, so this is the situation. What should I do? And they expect me to give the answer. And my answer typically is, I can't, you live in your world all the time. I hear what you've told me. Let's, let's work with you in light of what you know about the story. And I'll help you make the best decision you can. But I can't know because I'm not there. And I think sometimes we overestimate our ability to speak into a situation when we don't have all the facts, we don't have all the information, and that's okay. We don't Mm -hmm. have to know everything about everything. And to have that expectation of ourselves is just unreasonable. Yeah. Something else I should mention quickly because a listener reminded me by text at 204-780-6868. Jesse Smollett, I have a hard time saying that name, Jesse Smollett, Um, received a letter at the Fox Network, which is the network that runs Empire, his TV show. There was a letter, again, uh, horrible things said about him being black and gay and all this kind of stuff. Part of what Chicago police are now saying about the case, he sent it to himself. They believe he sent this letter and then followed it up with this bogus attack. That's according to Chicago police. So it's just incredible. It, it, It really is so hard to believe that anybody, uh, you know, we were, we were, I guess one of the connections we were sort of making in the newsroom today is about, you know, what happens if you get caught in a lie? And I mean, listen, we all maybe stretch the truth or tell the odd white lie, but this is so beyond that. I, I couldn't even make the connection. It, I think we need to recognize that we need to nuance things and paint the world with a small brush, right? If if he did this, this is not okay. No. Being dishonest is not right. Um, but I think we need to recognize that uh, he may be black and he may be gay, but that doesn't mean that this is what those people are like. This is what Jesse did in this moment for whatever reason this made sense for him to do. And the he has been arrested and he's going to be held accountable and we proceed there. And the reality of injustices in this world continue to exist regardless of what Jesse did or didn't do.
Hal Anderson Afternoons. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.